Today's episode is brought to you by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated. You can find them at globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com for all of your safety needs. Safe by choice, not by chance. Global Specialized Safety is veteran-owned and operated. Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to a fantastic edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today on the show, coming to me from the area of Walnut Grove. I thought that was just Little House on the Prairie. That's pretty awesome. Uh, Not Walnut Grove, Walnut Creek. We have Michael Sugru. Michael, let's start with uh, your book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. What inspired you to undertake such a massive project? Writing a book is no small task. Uh, It's definitely not. I actually have to owe it to my co-author. Her name is Dr. Shauna Springer, and she is a well-known psychologist, also a published author, but she spent the majority of her career helping combat veterans in the U.S. military, and she's also been working with first responders. And so we connected actually a couple years ago on LinkedIn, believe it or not, which is where I've connected with a lot of people. I have a large presence on there. And we had a discussion back then about a lot of things trauma-related and what I like to call PTSI. And we talked about stellate ganglion block, which is something that she works with and advocates for. And at that time, she actually mentioned, have you ever thought about writing a book about your personal story and recovery from post-traumatic stress? And I actually said, yes, I did think about writing a book, but I just was so burnt out from 21, you know, plus years of report writing in the military and law enforcement. I just, I didn't have the bandwidth to make it happen. And so we kind of just left the discussion at that. And fast forward a little bit, I actually had some other people approach me as well and ask me the same question, and I gave them the same answer. And about six or seven months later, uh, I reconnected with Doc Springer, and she said, hey, you know what, I've really been thinking about this, and you have a really unique story to share, and it's really resonated with me personally in a lot of ways, and I would like to make this project happen. And so um, we actually came up with the idea that we would do a bunch of recorded interviews between the two of us over a year and a half. And then she would take those interviews and turn it into what is now our book. And the whole concept of the book is that there's 15 chapters and the beginning of every single chapter is told in my voice. It's my story going all the way back to childhood until present day. And this is where the magic of this book comes in and and makes it very unique is Doc Springer She then, the second half of every chapter, she gives her insights, her explanation, um, her analysis in a global sense so that anybody reading this book, whether you're a first responder, you're military, or just somebody on the street, you're going to actually see the human side behind the uniform, behind the badge. And so it's not just my story. It's much bigger than that. And this 
this book is meant to, you know, resonate with all first responders, with all military veterans. And the hope is that by reading this book, it's going to help smash that stigma of asking for help. You know, I suffered in silence for over four years and it almost cost me everything, including my life. And so this book is really meant to show people that they're not alone, that there is hope, and that more importantly, there is help and that there's a whole new life on the other side of post-traumatic stress recovery. I love the format of the book. I, it's like we're, uh, we're twins or something because I want to do, um, I'm doing my third book right now. I'm in the middle of it and I would like to do something similar where there's me, the lived experience guy with, with, uh, what I've learned and then somebody with a PhD, uh, doing the footnotes at the end of each thing saying, okay, from a sciencey perspective, uh, this is what's going on here. Is that kind of the, the feel of yours? From Absolutely. But it's actually even, um, I would say, a step beyond that because Doc Springer, she's a culturally competent clinician. And so she gets it. She fully understands it. She's not someone that just studied this, but she's lived it for many years. So in this book, we actually both give very personal insights, very personal stories. So I think it's even a step beyond you know, what most people think of a clinician and their perspective in this book. And it's going to be so very powerful, so very unique. And the book is actually done. Uh, we're hoping to publish it on April 4th of this year. Um, we actually have it out to trusted readers across the country, uh, high up military officials, law enforcement officials. And we're starting to get their endorsements and their feedback coming back almost on a daily basis. And this book is just really, really resonating with them, and, and they're finding it very powerful. So I have no doubt that this book, as it's meant to be, is, is absolutely going to help save lives. And that's the sole purpose, is we want to help save lives. So tell me about that. How does a book help save lives, from your perspective? I mean, I agree with you, by the way. I'm not challenging it. Uh, but from your perspective, how does reading this book going to help somebody? You know, first off... Um, you know, my journey, it's been a long one and I didn't just get to this place overnight. It's taken a lot of years of a lot of work and a lot of different things that I've, I've been involved in, including uh, different week long treatment programs, you know, therapy, uh, first responder support group meetings, uh, a year long group with mission 22, save a warrior, West coast post trauma retreat. And so the thing is about this book is I'm extremely open and vulnerable you know, I'm in a position where I literally share everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And there was a lot of mistakes that I made in my journey. These mistakes almost cost my life. And I think the key to this particular project is that, you know, this isn't sugar sugarcoated, like everything is out there for everyone to see. And that's the point of this is that I want to be fully open. I want to be fully transparent. And, and that's important because, as first responders, as military members, we're so used to putting up this, this front, this image to the outside world that, you know, we're invincible. Nothing bothers us. You know, we, we just get the mission done and we drive on and we go on with our lives. And that's not the reality of it. The reality of it is that we see trauma on a daily basis over, in some cases, a 30-year career. And we're talking about hundreds of traumatic incidents. And in this culture, we never talk about that. We never acknowledge the impact of all these incidents on us, 
on our family, on our friends, on everybody for that matter. And so the key to this book is vulnerability. And that's vulnerability by myself and also Doc Springer. And I think that's the key to this is that people will see that they're not alone. Because when I was at the height of my struggling, I truly thought I was alone. I truly thought that there was no one else out there like me who was suffering like I was. And I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. It wasn't until years after my recovery that I realized that asking for help was the bravest and most courageous thing that I've ever done. It was nothing in the military. It was nothing I did on the streets as a police officer. It was getting the courage to raise my hand and say, look, my life is falling apart. I'm losing everything. And I I can't do anything about it. I can't control it. I need help. I can't do this on my own. Tell me about tell me about that moment. There must have been a moment. The moment where the light bulb went off, you went, fuck. (laughs) I need to I need to reach out for help now. Absolutely. And I and I remember like it was yesterday. And I'll I'll back up about a month before that moment because this is very pivotal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A month before that moment, my best friend, he's a Vietnam veteran. He also was a 35-year reserve officer with my department, and he was my best friend. Literally, I saw him every week for lunch. Well, about a week after Thanksgiving in 2016, while I was on duty as the day shift sergeant, he actually tried to take his own life. He slit both wrists. He stabbed himself in the torso multiple times, OD'd on multiple prescription medications. And when I heard the call came out, I didn't put it together right away and realize that it was my friend, John, that this suicide attempt in progress was happening. And I literally got to the trauma center as the ambulance was bringing him in and he was covered in blood. He was in and out of consciousness. And I literally had a brief second with him before they rushed him off to emergency surgery. And I remember looking into his (laughs) eyes and telling him that he was going to make it. He was going to pull through this. And I I honestly didn't believe that. (laughs) I thought he was going to die. I mean, this literally was, indescribable. I mean, here was my best friend who I had no idea was suffering like this. No idea. And I remember sitting at the hospital that night, waiting for him to come out of surgery, sitting there next to his sister and other people in the department. And just the the shame and the guilt that I felt of why didn't I see this? Why didn't I do something about this? I mean, my own best friend, I didn't see the signs, the indicators. And all I could think about was my young daughter at the time that I couldn't put her through that same situation and have her blame herself for me taking my own life. And so about a month after that, on the anniversary of my fatal shooting, that's when I literally broke down in a parking lot and just bawled for two hours. And finally, I just picked up my cell phone and I called my on-duty watch commander in my department and just said, look, I need help. I can't do this anymore. And that's what started my recovery. That's what started my journey of healing and led me to where I'm at today. What did you notice in yourself that you needed help? Like what kind of behavior were you displaying that had you in a tailspin? Like what did that actually look like? So some of it was immediate and some of it built up after time, but um, I was involved in a fatal shooting uh, the night after Christmas, the end of 2012. You know, at that time, I was happily married, had just bought my dream house, literally was promoted faster than anybody. My career was off the charts. And this particular incident is what pushed me over the edge. 
And I remember when I finally went home after that night, after being up all day and going through interviews with the district attorney's office, and I remember arriving home and just feeling completely numb, feeling detached. Right. I remember seeing my wife and my daughter at the front door and I gave them a quick hug. And all I wanted to do was go up to my room, close the door and go to sleep and hope that this was some bad nightmare that, you know, really didn't happen. And so that's what started my isolation. I mean, literally physical isolation, but also emotional isolation. I didn't talk about this incident with anybody. We were immediately sued. I was under two investigations, one from the department, one from the district attorney. And this was a, about a clean shoot as you can get. I mean, literally, we saved a couple. There was a man with a butcher knife who was trying to kill a couple and then tried to kill my partners and I. And so I know that we saved their lives. I know we did the right thing. But still, just the impact of what happened and the impact that I took a human life. I mean, to understand the toll of that and up in my face, I mean, literally feet away from me, this happened. And I couldn't get these images, this subject's face out of my nightmares. I literally had nightmares every single night. And I got to the point where I started drinking more, trying to drink myself to sleep, hoping again that this was some nightmare and I would wake up the next day what was, and what everything was the feeling, would be good again. What was the feeling associated with that? Uh, so was it second guessing yourself? Like, should I have killed him? What, what, what was going on there where it was haunting you? Just, it was just the image by itself. There's usually an associated feeling with that image. So there's more to this story and I think it's important to share, but in this particular case, this subject with the knife to this day, we don't know why he did what he did. Right. Prior to this night, this subject had no police contacts. He had no criminal record. Um, he had no issues. He had no mental health issues whatsoever. For all intents and purposes, he was a good young man living a good life. He had a job. Again, he was close with his family and his friends. And something happened that night. We don't know if it was drug-induced psychosis. We don't know if he just mentally snapped but to this day, even years later, after enduring a federal lawsuit, after all the investigations, after all the toxicologies, we don't know why this man did what he did. And I personally think that if this had been some serial killer, some gangbanger, some serial rapist, somebody with a 30-page rap sheet, I'm not saying this wouldn't affect me, but I think it would have affected me differently. Of course, yeah. And in this case, he had an identical twin brother who was also in the air force and I was in the air force and months after this incident, we had a court proceeding, which wasn't a, a, a criminal proceeding, but it was a civil proceeding where the family members of this subject was there, including the identical twin brothers. Reporters were there. Half my department was there. It was open to the public. And this is where I had to relive that night. And I had to see that same face in person and the family members just staring at me. Literally the you same know, like face. I was some cold-blooded killer. And, and that's the thing is yeah. I have to live with this. I mean, this was somebody's son. This was somebody's brother. You know, and all I could think about was how did his father fear? I mean, I took his son's life and I had a young daughter at the time. 
And all I wanted them to know is that I didn't want this to happen. I had no control over this incident. It had to happen. We had to save lives that night. Well, imagine the shame if you hadn't. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I I hear a lot of people talk about is survivor's guilt, Mm. you know, and inaction and, you know, the fear of, you know, I should have done this or I should have done that. And the fact is that I know we did the right thing that night. I know it in my heart. But, you know, naturally, years later, we go through a federal lawsuit in San Francisco, and I'm literally a defendant in court, and they bring in all these crazy expert witnesses planting theories, like literally planted evidence that we just executed this guy. And so sitting there for two weeks and hearing these theories, that also further impacted me, and that actually made me start to second-guess myself. You're getting gaslit. What if this or what if that or what if I would have hesitated here? You're getting gaslit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the trial went in 2016. So it took four years after my shooting. And at the height of my trial, there was literally like six controversial police shootings across the United States. And this was the beginning of the anti-police movement in the United States. So imagine me sitting there in San Francisco, one of the worst imaginable places to be on trial. And here I am devoted my entire life to protecting and serving. And now literally I feel like a criminal on trial for my life. That that feeling is unimaginable. That confusion that you were feeling um, of Like, why this kid? Like, what the hell happened? What's the evidence? Like, was he on some sort of weird drugs? Like, what happened? That same feeling that you're having is the feeling that the family was having because it made no sense to them either. You know, they would, if their kid had a a history of drug abuse or crime or something like that, but for them, the cognitive dissonance of, like, not my Johnny, my wife's a school principal, so she gets there. It's not my little Johnny, you know? Well, even from your perspective, having not knowing this, known this fella, um, like what the hell happened? So in the minds of those, of those family members, it must have been you. Like it couldn't be my Johnny. You know, they, there's just no way that they can grasp that their kid snapped and did this. So they will grasp it absolutely anything that they can so that it makes sense in their own brain because it's such a crazy crazy circumstance of course they think not my johnny of course they i hope his name wasn't john but um uh that's the cognitive distance that that family is uh, that's why they came at you with both barrels with zero empathy with no ability whatsoever to look at the big picture they were convinced that uh, that it was a bad shoot when it wasn't. and But you're exactly right. The shame of not doing anything, the shoot him in the leg crowd, right? Uh, the, the shame of that would be so much worse. Um, uh, had he obviously, you know, completed and, and hurt the people that were there, the shame would have been so much worse. So as shitty as this is, and it is a massive pile of manure that you had to deal with. It would have been worse had you not. So much worse. Absolutely. You know, at the time, I was so angry at the family. But, 
you know, looking at it now is I get it. I understand it. And I truly feel empathy and compassion for that family. And, yeah. you know, to this day, I, I hope they listen to one of my, my interviews. I hope they read my book because I want them to know that I never wanted that to happen. And I literally had no choice. And I want them to know the impact that that night had on me forever. I mean, forever. I will never forget that night. No. And so, you know, I don't hold anger. I don't hold resentment for that family. I truly, truly feel for them. And I hope someday, it probably will never happen, but I hope someday that I'm given an opportunity to be able to meet with the father, to talk with the father, because I want him to know how much this affected me. Let's talk about the shoot him in the leg crowd. Um, I can do it or you can do it. Uh, what would, what would you prefer for, you know, I mean, you're kind of triggering me right now, so I'm just going to bring it up. But, um, after my shooting, I remember, I think it was a few weeks after they actually had a press conference at my city hall and good or bad. I wanted to be there and, you know, no one knew the, the press was there. It was open to the public. And at that time, nobody knew that I was involved in the shooting, but I was in the back of the room and I was listening. And that very statement that you just said, some lady, she raised her hand and they called on her and they said, <laughs> well, why did they just shoot him in the foot? And I, I cannot believe it. I mean, part of me was like, are you kidding me? Like, really? But, you know, on the other side of well, that. Especially in San Francisco, right? Like who, who, own, who understands firearms or tactics in San Francisco uh, that isn't a copper ex-military. Well, well, absolutely. And, you know, to go into the specifics of my shooting, there was two different rounds of shots fired. I was involved in both of those rounds. And in the first round, we didn't even know that we hit him. It turned out that we did. We so found two, this out months later. Two, two volleys. Then. And yes, two volleys. And basically he was at the top of the stairs holding a butcher knife and he started coming at us. And at that time, a couple of us discharged our weapons and we didn't know we hit him. I didn't see any injuries. And I found out months later, months later after ballistics reports and reconstructions that I actually hit him twice. And then he was at the bottom of the stairs, still holding the butcher knife. And you could and tell at that from time, myself and another officer, we had our guns pointed at him. We couldn't see any blood. We couldn't see any injuries. All we can see is this butcher knife and we're giving him commands to drop the knife, drop the knife. And he starts coming up again with this knife. And so my point is, unlike Hollywood, unlike TV, when you shoot somebody, they don't stop a lot of times. Yeah. Most times, they keep coming at you. And also, what most people don't realize is that a knife will go straight through a ballistic vest. Ballistic vests can stop handgun rounds, but they do not stop knives. What's the training the nowadays? Knives are actually more deadly I know. than handguns. I, I've been involved in many investigations involving homicides, stabbings, and people die much quicker with stab wounds. And so let me back up and answer that original question All right. with that in perspective. When you have an armed subject with a butcher knife coming down a flight of stairs you shoot to stop the threat. You shoot, we're trained center mass and to the head. Stop the threat. We don't shoot for arms. 
We don't shoot for hands. Why? Well, first off, it's almost impossible. I don't care how good of a shot you are, how well trained you are to shoot a moving leg, a moving hand, a moving foot. It's next to impossible. Yeah, and, and so it's and it's trained. not a training issue. Uh, uh, people think, well, just do more training. Yeah, no, no, this is not how this works. Center mass, you'll hit. You're lucky if you get a hit shooting at center of mass. You, you'll be lucky to hit an elbow. People have been in gunfights from ten feet apart from each other and not hit anything but air. It's like the matrix. Well, well exactly. In my shooting, there's four officers there, and the first volley, there was two other officers that fired their weapons. And they didn't hit him. They didn't hit anything at all. And and that's the point is that, you know, in my case, there was four officers. One discharged his taser. That missed. Two other officers fired their firearms. They missed. I fired mine. Didn't even realize I hit him. And, and that's the point is that this isn't like Hollywood. You know, it's not like you shoot one time, the bullet goes in, the threat stopped. And like you alluded to is that, you know, a moving target especially when you talk about adrenaline, That's right. talk about tunnel vision. I mean, you're in fight or flight. And so, you know, being on a range in a training scenario with no stress, as opposed to literally in fear of your life, you know, about to be killed, very difficult. Well, when that, when it's coming at you, you have to neutralize the force. It's not a person at that point. It's a force that requires to be neutralized or you die. This is what happens. And it's pretty damned unnerving when you put a hole in somebody and they keep coming anyway. Uh, But because that person's adrenaline is going like crazy too. I once shot a deer and watched it run 100 yards before it collapsed. 100 yards. And I thought, geez, I must have had a poor shot. Nope. Both lungs and the heart exploded it was a perfect shot and but but that was just the way it was so it was at a rest i shot it runs 100 yards then collapses with no lungs and no heart that's what you can do when there's that much adrenaline epinephrine pumping through your system and it's the same with people and whatever caused him to snap uh that was adding fuel to the fire but it doesn't matter if you're flipping john wick if you try to go for the leg, that's a great theory. I wish that was something that could be a good uh, immediate action drill. The, the leg shoot. Let's, let's practice that all day long. You know, let's change the ranges and the gun targets uh, so that it's a leg coming at you. Well, th- that's great, but it still isn't enough. You could go right through somebody's femur and they'll keep coming at you. Uh, in the, they don't drop like a sack of wet cement. That's not what happens in real life. Now, back in the day, the safe uh, distance for training was 21 feet. That's uh, if somebody's got a knife and you're got your uh, sidearm in the holster and they start coming at you. If it's any less than 21 feet, you do not have enough time to to draw your weapon and put two into the center of mass. 21 feet, that was the training then. Now, you guys are already drawn at this point. Um, what's the training now for safe distance with a knife? It's probably, what, 40 feet more? You know, there's not a set distance. Honestly, you have to take a lot of different variables into account. Um, and in my case, it was less than 21 feet, you know. And like you said, our guns were already out. But I think 
I think what's important, and this is a simple demonstration that I'm going to talk about that anybody at home listening to this interview can do. Um, I saw this in a training class, and it really, really just cemented the fact of reaction versus action times. And that's really what's critical in this discussion when you're talking about feet, when you're talking about somebody with a knife. And the basically the exercise was that you have two people with Nerf guns because you want this to be safe. And so you have two people facing each other. You know, the distance isn't exact, but let's say that they're six or eight feet apart from each other and they have their guns basically. So you have your gun out and it's pointed at me and I'm the suspect and my gun is at my side. Almost every single time I can actually raise my arm up, point my Nerf gun at you and get a dart off before you can even fire a round. And that's because of the reaction versus action. They say it takes 0.75 seconds to perceive a threat and it takes 0.75 seconds another to react to that threat. So when you talk about that basically a second and a half, that's the advantage that that person has on you. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. And I encourage anybody at home listening to this to just try that that simple demonstration. And the instructions are that the you know the the cop they have their gun out like they would, and it's pointed at the bad guy. The bad guy has the Nerf gun at their side with their hand on it, and the instructions are is that the cop can't do anything until they see the subject or suspect react and see who can get the shot off first. Even though the suspect has the gun at the side, you would think that the officer has the advantage because their gun is already out, it's pointed at the subject, and you would think they would win but it's not the case. Again, the suspect knows what they're going to do. They're already thinking about reacting and they're going to move. They're going to react. And the facts are that you're not going to be able to match it. They're going to get that first round off first. The other giant factor here is the environment for rules of engagement. You're not in a war zone. You know, it's not, uh, it's not supposed to be combat every day that you're expecting. If it's combat, if you're an infantry soldier and you're on patrol in Afghanistan or Iraq and it's straight up war footing, you don't have to hesitate. It's problem, kill it. Problem, kill it. And with with nothing in between. Now, you put that same soldier on a UN tour like I was on and now you have all these rules of engagement. You have all these mitigating factors like do I shoot? Do I not shoot? What are the rules again? I have to wait to return like fire. It's not clear cut. And as a cop, it's not clear cut. It's like you have to take that extra moment, which you don't have, but you have to take it anyway to say, is this a threat? Is my response measured? Is this the proper response for the threat? That takes more than 0.25 of a second to figure that out because you don't want to go through because every cop that knows your story has got that somewhere in the back of their head like i better not fuck this up if i'm gonna take a shot if i'm even gonna take my uh, sidearm out of the holster god i don't want to turn into a michael sugru don't want to have that happen to me what a fucking nightmare so that hesitation is there too and that hesitation can kill you well, that hesitation is going to cost lives. Yeah, um, and that's, that's right. one of my biggest fears is that, you know, they're moving to change the use of force laws and they want officers to 
now exhaust everything and anything as opposed to using the appropriate force. And, you know, when time permits and distance permits or circumstances permit, sure, you know, use non-lethal force, use beanbag shotguns if you have it, use tasers if you have them. But some incidents evolve and happen so quickly that you don't have time for that. You literally have to either act or don't act. And if you don't act, not only is it going to cost your life, but it's going to cost other people's lives. And one thing I want to mention that you just brought up when you correlate combat veterans to law enforcement, one thing I talk about, and I think this is very important for people to to realize and comprehend is, and I'm former military, I was a captain in the Air Force, but when you're in combat, you're in a known hostile area for a defined period of time, you know, whether that's six months, a year, or what have you. And then usually you leave that hostile environment and you go back stateside or you go back to your base and now you're removed from that danger situation. And typically when you're at your home base or back in the United States, there really is no combat. There really is no threat every single day. But when you're a law enforcement officer, you are literally in combat or potential combat every single day, all day for your entire career. So imagine being in combat for 30 years, you know, We've seen it time and time again, but when there's officers that are out at breakfast or they're out at coffee and they've been ambushed, they've literally been killed just sitting there on their break, sitting there on their lunch. And especially with this anti-law enforcement sediment across the country, officers have to be aware of their surroundings 24-7, on guard, on edge, on duty, and also off duty. And I think people need to understand the toll that that takes and try to imagine for a second being in combat for 30 years. The problem with the hypervigilance that that creates is how much it screws up your life. Um, My wife and I went on vacation to Vancouver Island and this is a place that I knew well. I, I served there for two years as an infantry soldier and we're in downtown Victoria, but we spent a full week in a downtown area. Oh boy. That was that was too much for this cowboy, and uh, we're trying to have dinner, and I can't, like I can't look at my wife. I'm looking outside because I saw a couple of dodgies, uh, yeah, outside. You know, like oh, they're up to something, and, um, and and I couldn't turn it off. I had to keep my eyes on them, and of course, drove my wife around around the bend. It's like, hey, I'm right here. It's like, yeah, well, these guys are not right. I, it's all, and I don't have the bandwidth to explain what's happening to her because I'm on guard. Because in my head, these guys are about to kick open the door any second and shoot the place up, and I'm looking for weapons of opportunity, <laughs> everything that I could do to respond, right? And uh, and I'm running the scenario in my head, and like how how can I take these guys out? Like how could I do this? This is this is kind of a shit spot to be, and I don't like the position. And my back's to the door. None of this is good. And uh, uh, but she was really upset by it uh, until we were until I was able to uh, throttle back and explain this to her. But this is what hypervigilance does to you. It, it screws up your relationships. You're always on alert. People are. Are you listening to me? You're not even listening to me. You want to piss somebody off? Say, I'm sorry, what did you say? That'll pi- You mean you weren't listening to me? No, actually, I wasn't. My attention was over here. Are there all these things that you don't see, and I see it all. You don't see it, 
but I see it. And I'm doing threat assessments all the time. My war was in 1994. I got out of the military in 95, and I'm still switched on. This, that's the curse of hypervigilance. Well, it never goes away. No. You know, I retired about three and a half years ago. And as you know, you always have to sit facing the door when you're out anywhere in public, usually with your back to a wall. So there's nobody behind you. And, you know, like you said, I'm constantly scanning waistlines, hands, and it's not that you're not paying attention to your spouse or significant other. It's literally that it's so ingrained. It's second nature that you don't even realize you're doing it and you're doing it all the time, but you're always scanning. You're always looking, you're always evaluating. You're always, you've got split seconds to size people up and make determinations. Are they a threat? Are they not a threat? And you know, this is off duty on duty. I mean, it's, you're at home, you hear weird noise, you know, outside or you're in a restaurant, God forbid somebody drops a glass or a plate, you know, you literally want to pull out your gun and hit the ground. And, and look for who fired that round. And, and that's the reality of it is that it's so ingrained, it's human nature that we don't even think about it. And I don't think for most people it ever leaves us. I you, mean, you could be retired or removed from war like, like you were for many years, and it's still there. It's still there. It's I think be there for the rest of your life. A good analogy that just hit me is, um, uh, do you have kids, Michael? I do have a daughter. Okay, so you remember when you first brought her home from the hospital, right? I got two boys. And when that, especially your first kid, not, by the time you're on your second or your third, you, you sleep through the night, you don't care. You know, they felt they fall out of the crib. Yeah, whatever, they're fine. But the first one, not so much. The first one, that first week or two that you have them home, you're just listening. You're listening for every little news. Is that kid still breathing? And any little chirp that comes out of that kid, Boom, you're the, you're there. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And so any mother, any father that remembers that first week of their newborn coming home, now try to remember that that wore off at some point, that that's hypervigilance. Now imagine it never wears off, and you're always that nervous new parent forever. That's hypervigilance. Absolutely. You know, you brought up a funny memory. Well, it's funny now, but um, <laughs> I remember when my daughter was young and, you know, she was an infant. And at the time I was married and we would go out to eat at a restaurant or a coffee shop and people would always come up and, oh, your daughter's so beautiful. She's so cute. Well, when a guy came up and did that, the first thing I thought of was, man, who is this old perv? Is this some sex registrant, some 290, like, I remember like my wife at the time would be like, oh, he was so nice. I'm like, no, that guy is a dirtbag. He's a scumbag. He, he's <laughs> saying my daughter's beautiful. He needs to get the hell away, you know, before something happens. Like this guy is not a nice guy. And, and that's the thing, you know, like it's funny. Like when you ask a cop, what do you think of when you see a picture of a Boy Scout leader pop up on a screen? Pedophile. <laughs> exactly. But if you ask somebody in the public – they would think, oh, well, that's such a nice man. He's devoting his life to helping children. And it's like, no, that's not what cops think. We think this is some scumbag parading to be some nice guy, and we're not letting him near our kids. And it was the same thing when my yeah. daughter was very young. Like, any guy came up. It's like, dude, get the hell away. 
Just go. Prepare <laughs> prepare to be throat chopped. Here it comes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two, darling. <laughs> it's like, why do you look the, both ways? It's a one-way street. I know a thing or two because I've exactly. seen a thing or two. I'm not <laughs> trusting humanity. That doesn't. I've seen people go the wrong way down a one way. So pardon me, Perfect. I'm going to look both ways on a one way before I make this turn. Um, <laughs> God. Writing the book, Relentless Courage, let's uh, uh, take a step back. You must have found that very healing and therapeutic. Well, it's Or was it just a grind rehashing? No, you know, I think when the book comes out, it's going to be on the healing side. But, you know, actually going through this project and reliving it, I mean, very, very intimately and very detailed over a year and a half, it actually took a toll. I mean, my nightmares increased, my sleep got worse. And it's kind of like um, talking about after my shooting. So I went through four years of a federal lawsuit. So literally I had to relive this traumatic incident over and over and over. And in this book, there's a lot more than just a traumatic incident. I talk about a lot of traumatic incidents, but more importantly, I talk about a lot of administrative betrayal, and that's something that's not often talked about, but administrative betrayal is truly what pushes a lot of people over the edge. You know, we have the the workplace trauma, the traumatic incidents, but when we have our quote-unquote blue family, which we thought was our family, and they are until they're not, when they turn their back on us and they abandon us at our greatest times of need, that is what causes officers to oftentimes kill themselves. It's and it a, almost cost my life again because of my administrative betrayal. And I go into that in great detail, things that I've never talked about in any interviews, in any public presentations, because this stuff needs to be out there. Because you know what? Everyone's dealt with this. No one talks about it. But administrative betrayal is so, so very common among not only military, but all first responders. When you get hurt by somebody that you don't know, it's easy to get over. When you get hurt by somebody that you loved and trusted, that hurts. It's a form of sanctuary trauma. Sanctuary trauma is when you finally reach out for help, which is about two miles too late for most people. Um, You reach out for help and you get your hand smacked. Like, it's, it's not a safe place to land. You're like, oh, I finally reached out for help, and you were an asshole. No good. And administrative betrayal is uh, where these are the people that are supposed to have your back, or at the very least, be unbiased. And they're the ones putting a knife in your back. Not good. And that, that, that type of betrayal is so, so brutal. And the example of people killing themselves that is perfect for this is all the instances we keep hearing of, of people in the VA or in Canada VAC. So veterans affairs or veterans affairs, Canada in the parking lot in front of the building. And they, uh, they suck on the barrel of their gun right there in the parking lot. What are they saying when they do that? What they're saying is I came to you fuckers for help and it wasn't there. 
You, you kicked me when I was down. Fuck you. And that's why they do it. Because they're trying to make a statement of, this is what happened to me. Next time, just help somebody. Uh, and that is how powerful that betrayal from somebody close to you can be. That people are eating bullets in parking lots in front of the, uh, the VA or in front of VAC. Absolutely. And uh, one thing I want to touch on that we haven't talked about here, but a lot of people in the military and a lot of first responders, we don't just choose this job by chance. Oftentimes it chooses us because many first responders, many military veterans, we have some form of childhood trauma in our lives. It can be very minor. It can be, you know, just an emotionally distant parent. It could be a parent or relative who's an alcoholic, a drug addict, or it can be on the very extreme spectrum and be physical abuse, sexual abuse. But we learn at a very young age to adapt, to be resilient, to overcome adversity, to be natural caretakers. And so we lean towards these professions, which in my case was a calling. And now we find our new family and in the beginning, it's like it's like a brand new marriage. Everything is wonderful. Every everybody loves you. Everybody supports you. Everyone's got your back. And you have this mentality that, and it's true that, hey, you know what? I would die for my partners. I know they would have my back. They would run into this active shooter situation with me. They would go into this domestic violence call right by my side. And I have no doubt they would have my back. They would have my life. And so we truly believe that this is a family. It's our new family, one that we love, one that we trust. And it isn't until that situation happens where you realize, no, 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 it's not a family. This is a business. It's literally, they've got a job to do and they want you healthy. Well, I should say healthy, quote unquote healthy, not truly healthy, but they want you to be at work doing the job. They don't want you off injured They don't want you off getting help. They don't want you off trying to get better. They either want you there or they want you off the books. And that's the hard realization is that I don't care how good a soldier you were, how good an officer you were, when it comes down to it, if you're not on the street working, they don't want you. And that's a hard reality to accept. They just want you to be useful. If you're not useful, you get... Exactly. In my case, I figured, you know what? I'm going to do all I can to get better. And my goal was to always go back to work because this is all I knew. I wanted to be a police officer since I was a young child. And when I was trying to get better, that's when my quote unquote family abandoned me. They didn't want me anymore. I was like that used toy that was no good anymore. And they wanted to toss me out to the street. Policing's always been a thankless job. Always. It's never not been that. And there's always been the I hate cops crowd, especially when you're the one getting pulled over for a ticket. You know, um, that's always been the case. However, over the last six years, in particular the last three years, uh, there's been the defund police crowd, the I hate cops crowd, pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. This keeps happening. And it has is repeated on the news that you're supposed to hate cops. Cops are bad. The The blue line, which is just supporting cops, uh, blue line is now white supremacy. Oh, that's nice. So uh, a little morale patch is now so many forces say, no, no, you can't be wearing that morale patch. That's white supremacy. 
it's like, but no, it's just pro pro cops. No, 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 no. This is white supremacy. Oh, okay. Uh, what has this done to the suicide rate of police officers? Well, let's start with the facts are that for all first responders and especially law enforcement, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than in the line of duty. Let me repeat that. We are much more likely to die by our own hands than in the line of duty. That is a fact. And and you think about that. We spend all this time training defensive tactics, firearms, emergency driving, but we don't spend any time training on our mental health, on how to take care of ourselves, on how to acknowledge this human side. And so now you add, you know, trauma is trauma. And in your first responder, you're a police officer, you're going to be exposed to trauma. That's a fact. And so we need to talk about that. We need to address that. But now when you add this anti-police movement sentiment, what we have now is we have progressive, quote unquote, leaders who aren't leaders, who are in charge of agencies, in charge of police departments, who are city managers, county officials, mayors, even governors in some case. And so now there is no support at any level. As an officer, we don't have support from the public on the street. We don't oftentimes have support from our own agencies, and we don't have support from public officials. And so when things happen, we're put out there, hung out to dry by ourselves. You know, there's now here in California in the Bay Area, I know of several examples close to where I live where officers who were involved in good shootings, where they had no choice, where they saved lives, are now being prosecuted, putting on trial, charged with criminal charges for doing their job. So now, why would you want to be a police officer? Why would you want to do this job when every day is a chance not only to die, because we know that, we literally go out every day putting our lives on the line for complete strangers, knowing we may not come home to our families. We know that, and we're willing to do that because that's how much we believe in protecting and serving and making a difference. But now on top of that, so now we're going to, second guess our actions, which may cost our lives. Or if we do act, now we're going to be sued. We're going to be prosecuted criminally. We're going to lose everything we have. And we may spend the rest of our lives in prison because we did the right thing. I mean, imagine the weight of that. Imagine the toll. There's no other profession where they have to deal with that. They have to experience that. No other profession. Yeah, it's... um like being a United Nations soldier where I was, when I was. Um, so, so many instances where if it was a NATO tour, great, I light up the machine gun and I take care of the problem. But because it wasn't a NATO tour, geez, if I light up this machine gun, uh, what's going to happen? I know leadership doesn't have my back. Am I going to end up in jail? Is this going to be an international incident? Am I going to embarrass my country? All questions that should not be in your head in a combat zone. It should just be pretty simple, threat or not a threat, and respond accordingly. But there's so many shades of gray that you don't know what to do or or how to do, so you freeze up. And when you hesitate, hesitation kills. And that's probably why there's more dead officers on duty now than there used to be. 
because they're like, whoa, shoot him in the lake crowd just around the corner. I don't know what to do here. You know, I know what I should do, what I need to do, but I don't know if I'm if I want to do it, if it's going to be worth it. Maybe maybe I'll just go hand to hand with this guy with this knife. You know, and that hesitation will get you killed. Uh, we're just about at time. Let's switch gears back to stellate ganglion block. What the hell is that? So that's actually a, a medical procedure. Uh, to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And a stellate ganglion block's actually been around for over 100 years. It initially was used for pain, like pain blocks. And um, many years ago, I think about 20 years ago, they started using it on military, on special operators like Green Berets, Navy SEALs, um, Delta. And the whole concept is, is that basically they use an anesthetic. The procedure is done by an anesthesiologist. And they shoot the anesthetic into your bundle of nerves, specific points on your, usually they start with the right side of your neck and then the left side of your neck. And the idea is that the uh, the procedure slows down the amygdala, which is the primitive brain, the human brain that controls flight or fight. That's the one that gives you all these physical symptoms when you feel like you're threatened, you feel like there's danger. And the idea is that this anesthetic actually slows down the primitive brain and reduces these physical symptoms of PTSD. And I've actually gone through this procedure. Um, I had it done earlier this year and it's very quick. It's literally painless. It takes about 15 minutes for the procedure. And for most people, I believe the effective rate is close to like 85% um, where you initially feel right away a reduction in these physical symptoms. And then usually it takes about a week or two to realize the full the full relief. And this isn't a cure for PTS. I want to be clear on that. But the concept is, is that by reducing these symptoms of the amygdala, the human brain, it allows you to kind of open up and focus on the things that you need to work on. So, you know, you get the stellate ganglion block and you should follow that up with therapy, followed up with programs like I did, like a week-long retreat. Um, it's not just get the shot, your life is better, move on. No, it's a coping, yeah, it's a temporary coping mechanism that helps you take the weight out of your backpack so that you can focus on yourself. When the weight Exactly. Is- and, you know, for some people, the effects are six months. For some people, it's several years. Yeah. Um, everybody's different with their metabolism, with their, their trauma, you know, but the facts are that it does help. It does work. It's very safe. And um, Dr. Springer, my co-author, she is the lead psychologist for Stella. And Stella is a, a national organization. It was actually created by Dr. Eugene Lipoff, who's one of the pioneers of using SGB for PTSD. And now they go around the country and they actually train anesthesiologists specifically how to do this procedure. And when they do it, they do it under imaging or sonogram. They don't just randomly stick a needle in your neck, but they actually make sure that it's going to this very specific bundle of nerves that controls the amygdala. And if you want to know more about it, literally just Google stellate ganglion block or Google Stella. And there's several informative videos, um, some by Dr. Springer, but also by other patients, both combat veterans and first responders who have had the procedure done. We have so much more to talk about, but we're at time. We have to do this again, Michael. Absolutely. Absolutely. We could talk for hours, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. All right, brother. 
please stay online and thank you again for being here. And for those that are wondering, that book again is Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma with co-author Shauna Springer. Dr. Shauna Springer, please stay in the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated. You can find them at globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com for all of your safety needs. Safe by choice, not by chance. Global Specialized Safety is veteran-owned and operated.